how did we get into the modern world? This question is quite significant, and it roots back into the things we've already been through. We've discussed the scientific revolution and the beginning of an era of change and, and dramatic knowledge, and with that coming along and following on its heels, the age of enlightenment, the period in which people begin to think about new ideas, new concepts. From those springboard a whole new set of unique concepts, concepts of freedom and liberty and equality that are reframed in new and exciting ways, which brings a challenge to the status quo, to the monarchies of Europe. England has already experienced a transformation. Now the new nation of America is born out of these very ideas, this very need for revolution. And we saw in France a nation struggle to rise with mixed results. Now we're entering into a period where things are going to change quite drastically. Revolutions are going to happen. In some ways, they're going to pick up speed. And yet something else is going on an age of technological advancement, an era uh, in which the whole entire surface of society is going to be refaced with new ideas, new philosophies, new ways of thinking, new science. And some of these changes, while welcome, will also be quite frightening. Welcome to the period of isms. Buckle up and get ready. I'm taking you from the steam engine all the way to the fields of World War I. It's the end of the 19th century. It's a shack in Paris. It's basically serving as a research facility. The shack was something between a potato shed and a stable, as opposed to the high-tech laboratory where something like this usually occurs. It was a husband and wife duo of scientists. They were working and trying to desperately extract radioactive materials. Many days, young Marie, Marie Curie, spent stirring big cauldrons of uranium-rich substance until her body was just aching and racked with pain. What they discovered was known as radium. It seemed at the moment inconsequential. She and Pierre were even passed over to initially receive the Nobel Prize. Only later that year, they realized they had made an error in not giving it to her, and they gave her the prize. She became the first woman in history to receive one. They didn't know how dangerous the substance they were dealing with were. Marie Curie even used some of the samples as nightlight. It made her sick. By the time of her death of leukemia in 1934, she was broken down by the substances that she had discovered. The 19th century discovered radioactivity, and it seems fitting when one considers what happens in the 20th century. Welcome to the age of invention, the age of unparalleled change. This is the 19th century, and there's a lot going on. We could have spent probably half the semester just in the 19th century because there's just so much radical change taking place all over the world. Unfortunately, I really have some things I need to get into in the 20th century, so I'm going to have to abridge some of these pieces and try to cover what I think is important and what I think will contribute to the story as we continue to move towards its conclusion. We're about five weeks or so out. So we've got a lot to get done in a short time to do it in. But the 19th century, um, the new technologies and new possibilities that are opening in this period um, can't be overstated. I mean, this was, this was dramatic change to the world. And this means that this also altered the landscape of rural communities. Rural communities and rural people, um, they come into cities to find jobs. 
and the jobs that they want to be near the factories. And they start to to pile in and file into cities in order to get these jobs. And it just doesn't bring men. It also brings women. And in fact, one of the great changes of this period is that women become a part of the factories. And factories start to really take in an extreme amount of labor because there's just a lot of textiles being made all over the place and other, other manufacturers as well. So they swallow up the rural laborers, and that means that bringing in laborers from other countries becomes more attractive. Immigrants coming in looking for jobs, looking for opportunities. And immigrants are going to file in and crowd cities. And when they come into cities, you can imagine they're bringing different languages, they're bringing different cultures, religions, backgrounds. And that is going to result in an unfortunately in confrontation. A lot of hostility will happen. Creating America into a melting pot has not been easy. And in many ways, there's still great work that needs to be done. But every country is beginning to experience, in Europe, is beginning to experience at least some form of the Industrial Revolution, even some, even though some are not quite as advanced as others. The one place where the revolution is noticeably absent is Russia. The, the Tsar uh, wants to keep everything as if they're still serfs. And so they import manufactured goods and they focus on exporting raw materials. But Everywhere else, there's been a huge burst, and that burst has caused a burst in population. And in fact, population is going to grow dramatically. There are going to be fewer deaths, and part of that is due to more stable supply of food. And while conditions are squalid, there is, in some ways, a little bit more, um, a little bit more science, and a little bit more. They're beginning to learn a little bit more about how the human body works and how to fix illnesses, but. This, uh, this stability in food, of course, as you can imagine, comes at a cost. And those on the bottom end of the social spectrum are going to feel the age of invention very differently than those on the top. So what does it mean to be on the bottom? Well, in this case, the people who start crowding into cities um, find their conditions sometimes to be far worse than what they would imagine. They came, especially those coming to America, they imagined streets being lined with gold and instead they're living in shacks. It's filthy. It's, it's maybe even worse than their home country. And large families then will crowd these tenements, these filthy, they're expensive, overcrowded, and they'll live in apartments that were dilapidating with rats, just about any other health hazard that you can imagine. And the whole family would have to work to contribute to try to keep things moving along. So sometimes they'll come with, you know, six, seven, eight kids, and all those kids will have to work in factories, as well as mom and dad. Now, that seems like uh, that's a huge jump in cruelty, but it kind of isn't. Uh, and what I mean by that is this. Some of these families already came from little farm communities, and in the farm, every, every farm communities, everyone worked. So this was not an unusual thing for them to have, you know, the kids out working. It wasn't like this was a new thing. But definitely, when they come into that urban setting, it gets far worse. Uh, the, the working conditions are just deplorable, as opposed to working out on a farm or having some leeway because you're running your own family, uh, your own little family plot. Uh, so keeping that in mind, you know, this was, a, this was grueling. And usually, work started around sunrise, right before sunrise, and it would last until uh, the end of the day, sometime in the night. So the average work hours was about 12 to 16 hours a day. And there's very few breaks, a little bit of time to eat. There was no minimum wage. There were no rights. 
The boss could fire you and didn't have to give you any indication as to why you were being fired. And if you were hurt on the job, well, wasn't a problem. You were out on the street. So that's how that went. People work six days a week. And if you got if you got injured, I mean, you could be in a factory, lose your arm, your foot, your hand. It didn't matter. You, they weren't going to keep you around. They weren't going to pay you anything. You were useless. You're tossed out on your on your on your head, and you'd be lucky to find a job anywhere. So unlike the upper classes, which which is where a new like business aristocracy is forming, the lower classes felt the full brunt of industrialization. Factories and mines were full of women and children, and in England, these people were called pit brow women. Now, to keep in mind just how squalid this is, um, my grandfather, his name was Arthur. And his mother and father both came from England. One uh, one parent came from uh, Shropshire, uh, which is a little county there in the west of England. And the other family came from a place called Wigan, which is halfway between Manchester and uh, Liverpool. And this area was known for the atrocious conditions that people experienced there. And I had very I had a great deal of difficulty learning about my great grandfather. I tracked and sought and sought looking for him and you know where he came from to find out about his family and it was nothing finally after years of searching i located a document that had his name on it and listed him in a census as two years old and it said his father was killed in a coal mining accident so i got in touch i found finally found someone who knew something about it and started to realize and find out about the story so his 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 family was so poor and his mother was actually, his mother and grandmother were pit brow women. And his mother, of course, she, she after the, the, her, his father died, she had the opportunity to get married. She left him with the grandparents. So he experienced this firsthand, which to me is really fascinating to think about what my grandfather's life was like growing up um, in this particular period of change and turmoil in England. So if you want to see kind of what this is like, on your slides, those of you who are my students should have the slides. You can see the tenements down at the bottom left. And of course, those would be some of the boys who work the mines. And then over on this, on the right side, you can see the scene of a woman pulling the cart full of coal through the mines. I mean, you take a look at that. I mean, that's, an, that's a grueling, grueling, grueling amount of work. Okay, this would be what we call a pit brow woman. And uh, just fascinating. This is what people lived through, and this is what it was like living in the lower class of this period. By 1830, the women and children made up about 66% of the cotton industry's workers. And the number of children, though, do begin to drop off in the, in the Factory Act of 1833 in England. So we start to see a, a dramatic drop in the number of children that are working in the factories. But again, just keeping how how terrible this was and what this was like, which, you know, is why workers start to realize that if they're going to get the money that's necessary, that they deserve, they're going to need to unite and they're going to need to form organizations to protect their rights and to protect their wages. And as the century reaches the halfway mark, a new group of reform-minded people start to question the conditions the workers are faced with. In England, Parliament had an influx of reformers campaigning for laws that limited child labor and advocated for the children to have rights to basic education. Now, legislation that came through Parliament dictated children between the ages of 9 and 13 needed to have at least two hours a day of elementary education. 
And by 1847, Parliament had passed an act. This might not sound like a great stride forward, but, you know, sometimes progress is measured in centimeters. Uh, children were limited to a workday of 10 hours. So, you know, something, right? Uh, and this changed for women as well, and then later on for men. And then by 1842, boys in England could not be employed in the mine if they were under the age of 10 years old. Don't you think about that? That means there were boys working the mine before 1842 that were under the age of 10. My son is six, and I cannot imagine him down there digging in the mine, uh, working in that type of environment. It's still just befuddling to me. But uh, not everybody feels that way. And that brings me to my Mad History headline today is called Scrooged. So you might like Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. It might be one of your favorite Christian Christmas movies. If it is, uh, you're not alone because Mr. Hughes also loves Dickens' Christmas Carol. But you should also know something about Dickens. Dickens was born to Dickens was born to a middling family. They had enough money. They had eight children. They had enough money to send uh, their brightest kid to school. But out of the eight, Charles was not picked as the brightest one to go to school. His sister was instead. And uh, so. You know, Charles Charles experienced a little bit of uh, shock there, not being the brightest kid. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, he turns out to be their, their best one. But when he's about 12 years old, his dad had some debt, and his dad is carted off to debtor's prison, which is what happened. You went to prison if you owed money. So Charles is left to fend for the family, and he gets a job with working at a blacking factory where they make shoe, shoe shine. After a few months, his father is then able to negotiate a deal. He gets out of, out of jail, and uh, he comes back, and he takes the boy out of the factory and decides to send Charles to the academy. But this motivated Charles Dickens. His life, The Christmas Carol, and other books that he wrote focused around the blight of those who had to work in the factory. Um, he believed children should have the opportunity to have an education. He believed that people should be given uh, the education made it possible for them to have opportunities to do better for themselves. So if you're looking to the Christmas Carol next time you watch it, which is hopefully every Christmas because that's what I do, um, you know, look around and see and, and you can see some of the, the touches of Charles's thoughts about the Industrial Revolution. Very fascinating. But not everybody thought that this society could be reformed the way Charles did. In fact, some thought the whole system of the invisible hand was a crock. And it was meant to keep the rich richer and the poor man as a serf. Enter Karl Marx. Marx adds yet another explosive idea that Europeans can add to the growing pyre that is piling up in Central Europe. Marx was born in Trier, Prussia, today Germany, in the year of 1818. His father was bourgeoisie, but he had something of a tarnished reputation. You see, the Marx family was Jewish. And that meant opportunities for their family, well, they were not plentiful. However, during the years that Napoleon had ruled the German states, Karl's father had done well for himself. Napoleon didn't care about his religion. Uh, he didn't care about any of that kind of stuff. And this allowed him, this allowed Jews to flourish. Napoleon was surprisingly, despite being depicted as a dictator, he was surprisingly liberal to many other groups. and um, But once Napoleon was out of power, the old aristocracy came back, and he found himself kind of hampered. In fact, he was forced to convert to Christianity. One night at a party, a group of nobles toasted to the French Revolution, and word got back to the authorities when Carl's dad was, of course, one of those who was implicated. It nearly ruined him. 
So he wanted to make something out of the life of his son, uh, Karl. So he tried to send Karl to Bonn, the University of Bonn in Germany, modern-day Germany, to study law. But there was a lot of problems. First of all, Karl was kind of a hellraiser, okay? Uh, he got into a lot of fights. He drank like a fish. And, um, and eventually, he gets into so much trouble that the dad's like, this isn't working out for him in Bonn. This life does not agree with him there. Let's send him on to the better university. Let's send him to Berlin. So he goes to Berlin. And, of course, you know, he intends to keep up his habits of, you know, party time. But he comes across an Enlightenment thinker, the last of the great Enlightenment thinkers, that really changes Karl's life. And that, that thinker is Frederick Hegel. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, Marx had a very strong personality. He was kind of a my way or the highway type. And uh, he was very passionate and strong. And he had, he had an extreme form of self-confidence. That was one thing Karl Marx never lacked was his self-confidence. He's fiercely intelligent, hopelessly restless. And um, he's looking for something. When he leaves the university, he becomes a journalist. Um, his, his writings are scathing indictments against the corruption of the aristocracy. He is calling them out. Um, he's calling them out for their for their uh, for the lifestyle the lifestyles that they live and for the fact that they have all of this uh, wealth and can get away with doing anything. Their corruption. So Karl Marx is definitely writing against the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. Well, writing stuff like that, speaking truth to power, might might look good on paper, but it doesn't turn out so well for Marx. In fact, the aristocracy pushes him out of Prussia, and he's forced to leave. So he and his young wife, Jenny, leave for Paris. His paper, the Rhineland News, is closed. Marx is now about 25 years old. And he arrives in Paris, and he has nothing. Okay, He lives in... This is the first time in his life he doesn't live in a real nice place. Because remember, Marx's family was most basically bourgeoisie. That's what he had been raised. He had been raised in, in a kind of... a a small form of aristocracy. So he sets about doing the thing he knows how to do best. He's writing, he's a writer, he works for a paper, and he's agitating and beginning to really formulate and set his ideas about that's going to formulate into communism. And um, he meets up with a lot of thinkers who have some really different ways of looking at things. And he's particularly attracted by the, the idea of the commune that became really popular in the French Revolution, commune sometimes could make it possible, depending on how the commune was run, for people to pool together and work for the greater good. So Marx falls in with a lot of like-minded thinkers, which really challenges him and helps him to grow. And one of those becomes the most important friend of his life, Frederick Engels. Now, Engels is a perfect friend for Marx. He came in just at the right time of Marx's life. I would argue that Engels, while, while bright, it's probably not quite as bright as, as Karl. Karl was a little bit had a little bit more going on than Engels did. In 1843, revolution was heating up across Europe. And so the authorities, the aristocracy, begin to kind of warn against uh, anybody who might cause trouble. So the Prussian aristocracy get in contact with the French government and let them know about Marx. They hunt Marx down, and Marx is kicked out of France in 1845. So he goes to Belgium, and Belgium is taking people who have nowhere to go. But Belgium says, look, you can be here, but you can't be, you can't be agitating and causing revolutionary activity. So he should be silenced, and he basically is. He's now working mostly underground, if you will. 
And he's been helping little communist communities form all over Europe, communicating with them, and they've been building kind of an alliance. By 1848, a revolution has broken out in Prussia. So Marx realizes, this is my time and my moment to be involved in this revolution. But it, it breaks pretty quickly. This is the failed revolution of 1848 that I've already told you about. And it's not to be broken up, and Marx actually gets arrested. Now, he almost goes to prison. He barely escapes that. And again, due to connections, probably from his, his family, he was able to, to get out of that. But he's exiled again. And this time he goes to a place there where he can do little damage. He goes to England. And there, Marx enters the works phase of his life. Now, Marx was a passionate guy. And when it came to his writing, he could really get into that project and do a lot of work. But he's never been known to be an incredibly hard worker. I mean, he's been bourgeoisie. He's never really had do, to do a lot of hard work through his life. So he lives in tenements in Soho, which is like, at that time, one of the worst possible tenements you could live in. I mean, it's just filth and squalor. And um, he doesn't work. He doesn't really attempt to find work. He's working on a book, okay? That's what he's doing. He doesn't have time to get involved with that. His life becomes undisciplined and full of woe. And it's, it's again, crowded, filthy, and Marx drinks all the time. Marx pretty much at this point in his life, and maybe even before this, has been a drunkard, but he's definitely a drunkard at this point for sure. And his wife has to get, comes to the point over the few years that she has to beg her family for money to live because they, they can barely make it. And there's a lot of low points. I mean, they lose three of their children during this period of time, so it was a time of probably depression for Marx and for his family, especially the last child, Edgar, that passed away at the age of eight. I guess the people standing there said Marx almost crawled in the, in the grave with him. He was so distraught. And, um, and of course, it would, to make matters worse, they had a family friend named Helena de Muth, and while Jenny is pregnant with Marx's, one of Marx's children, uh, Marx has an affair with Helena, and they have an illegitimate, is an illegitimate child by Elena. So this is a dark period of Marx's life. So again, Marx, Marx probably could have done something to go out and get a job, but he doesn't seem to see the need to do that, apparently. So Ingalls comes back and says, I'll help you out. So Ingalls goes back to his father's factory. Now his father, Ingalls' father owned a factory in England. He was a, you know, quote unquote, capitalist pig. And Ingalls hated working for him, so Ingalls went back to work for him, thinking, well, Marx is writing this book. I'm going to support Marx and his family while he's in the process of writing this, this great book that's going to revolutionize the world. So they, they, the irony is that they needed capitalism to help support their theory. Uh, there you go, right? But the new book is called Das Kapital. And by and large, at the time it's written, it's more or less a failure. It comes out, and Ingalls tries to make the thing fly, but it doesn't. But Marx wasn't in total uh, despair because his wife had two, two inheritances that made them fairly comfortable. So Marx moves out of Soho, moves into a nice bourgeoisie community, and uh, tries. To, he lives mostly above his means. Like He's always trying to impress and hold parties he doesn't have money for. And uh, so he has you know, a significant amount of debt, but he keeps up appearances. This is the lifestyle that Marx had been accustomed to. 
uh, in in Trier, right? And um, he, luckily, you know, like I said, he was able to kind of keep himself floating. He even dabbles, and here's one. Here's one for the books. He even dabbles in the stock market. Okay, so that's not what a socialist is supposed to be doing. Okay, but Marx's ideas, nonetheless, in Das Kapital are a huge firestorm. I mean, they set a lot of things in motion in time. Okay, and here's what Marx thought. So you know that Marx was a great follower of Hegel. And um, he, as a, univer- as a student at the university, you know, he found himself captivated with this idea of Hegel that, um, that history is a gradual unfolding of reason and order. He looked at the past uh, part as part of a continuing story of progress from the cave to the futuristic age. So instead of seeing the past as something stuck, the past is something in which has now been handed to you and I, and we're a part of this unfolding drama to how history unfolds, and that everything is moving towards reason, rationality, and order out of the chaos emerges this order. And Marx believes that but the problem with our progress is we should be much farther along, but we're not. And that's because the, the, the aristocracy, the middle class, and the religious leaders have kept people under bondage. And this is causing problems that have prohibited the kind of growth that society might be able to achieve otherwise. So in the beginning, Marx and the Hegelians targeted religion. But ultimately, Marx came to see religion not so much as the problem, but as a tool that was used he called it an opiate, opium of the masses. What he meant was religion was a tool of the upper class that made people concentrate on the afterlife while ignoring the horrible conditions of the present. So the idea is people were told, hey, don't worry about you know old man Jenkins with all the money. Uh, one day he's going to get what's coming to him and you're going to get celestial bliss. And so people weren't concentrated. They were looking... Um, they were looking in the after instead of looking in the now, instead of looking in the present for living their lives and having the things they need in this moment. People often think that Marx hated capitalism. That's just simply not true. Marx didn't have a particular problem with capitalism on its own. That is, Marx actually saw capitalism as as the start of something good because it put power in the hands of more people than just a few landed aristocracies. He praised capitalism and the work of the bourgeoisie. This is actually a quote from Marx. He said, The bourgeoisie, by rapid improvements of all instruments of production, by by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all nations, even the most barbarian, into civilization. The cheap prices of its commodities are heavy, heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive, more colossal productive forces than have all the preceding generations together. So it's not so much that Marx thinks that capitalism is particularly wrong. He just thinks the problem is that while capitalism had had its merits, uh, and it was a, it was it was really just a stop on the path towards progress. If capitalism became the ultimate final point, stopping point, then nothing was achieved because capitalism just basically facilitated a new kind of upper class of wealthy landowners. Those wealthy landowners are exploiting the working classes, and now we're back to basically where we started. He called this kind of concept a superstructure, 
which is where we act out our part because this is what tradition tells us to do. And so all of society and all the economic structure and classes are basically being dictated by past traditions. So people just fall back into the same modes of doing things that they've always done it before. So now Marx would see the workers then as some kind of like a, a new peasantry, okay? They're getting taken advantage of by not having the power over the things that they create. And part of their own identity and things they create is being stripped away from them as Marx sees it. And essentially that means the fat cats are getting richer and everybody else is getting poorer. So capitalism uh, expanded that class, but it didn't eliminate class. And until class is eliminated, Marx saw this as the continuation of difficulties and problems. So Marx looked at capitalism at the time, and he saw, look, capitalism has all these boom and bust cycles. And remember, capitalism is still fairly new in, its con in the concept. And so there, it also has its own problems as it's trying to work out. Uh, we're trying to work out and see what works, what's best, how this all comes together, and government policies play a role in how capitalism works out as well. So that's something people don't often take into consideration. But he saw there's those boom and bust cycles, and then it goes into recessions, and then there are shortages. There's all these ups and downs, so capitalism is inherently unstable, Marx thought. He believed that capitalism wasn't here to stay because it just wasn't stable enough to be able to make it. He saw that the price system, in Marx's mind, the price system was the real problem. It was the real difficulty. And so the working class had to rise up and take ownership over the things that they create. They needed to demand that they got more of the proceeds of the stuff that was coming from their own hands. Now, this is where Marx had set up and established something that you know, became known. So in 1848, when he and Engels come together in Belgium, they had been funding those secret communist societies. But that year, the revolution happens, and Engels sat down and actually wrote out what's called the Communist Manifesto. And it describes the reorganization of society, which eliminates class distinction. It gave workers the rights over the work of their own hands, and explains how the bourgeoisie, instead of being the victims, actually had a hand to play in overturning the system in the upcoming revolution. He saw them as, you know, not as necessarily bad people, but just as people who needed to make this shift. So the manifesto, um, you know, really kind of came to nothing at the time. In 1848, the revolution is stamped out. Marx goes to England. When he comes out with Das Kapital, it's in the 1860s, and the economy is stabilized, and things are more stable, and it seems like basically it's a lost cause. Like Marx's time came, but he wasn't ready for it. And it passed over him. And in his lifetime, he did not see his own work really played out. But there are a number of young boys in Russia who, uh, who are reading this. And there's going to be some interesting things develop as we move into the 20th century. Now, the problem was that not everybody felt the same way as Marx did. And throughout the 19th century, this divide becomes more and more pronounced. And many nations felt that capitalism was, was doing quite well. And there were open doors to trades and commerce, things that were undreamed of 150 years ago. By the end of the century, this new kind of imperialism emerges, which allowed developed countries to exploit less developed countries for resources and labor. The United States initially in the early part of the 19th century was kind of too involved in its own mess. Of course, you guys know about this. You've studied it in, in U.S. history. 
but uh, it's called Civil War, right? But at the end of the century, the United States is really starting to slowly step into this stage as well, wanting to exert its influence over the world. By the 1880s, there's a kind of almost space race again. And this time, what it is, is Europeans are seeking to bring other nations under their control. So they're looking for nations that they consider to be less civilized than themselves. They start to carve up Africa among the European powers. The British seize control, British seize control of India in the middle of the century. Uh, and nearly every part of the world fell under what was called the white man's burden, as it was known. Okay, so we don't want to do this, guys. It's not our choice, but you know, it's our burden. So this, this, this was part of the issue. Now, you might be wondering what motivated people to think that imperialism was justified. Like, how do people just say, you know, you obviously need help, so we're going to come and take over everything for your benefit. Well, it works out two ways, okay? First of all, um, there were people who, you know, wanted to convert the pagans, and, and so this is part of it. But actually, this is kind of underpinned by a new philosophy, a secular philosophy, an idea that came out uh, in the 19th century. So Darwin has a cousin. We all have a cousin like this. If you don't know who this cousin is, there's a strong probability that it's you. Okay, so this cousin's name is Herbert Spencer. So piggybacking off of Darwin, he proposes that Darwin's theory of evolution was the same in the social world. That is, there are some people who are more involved, more clever, more industrious, because they are more involved. They, they're farther down the chain of evolution. Others are still clinging to branches their recent ancestors were swinging from. And yes, that was a pun intended. Okay. So, uh, obviously, um, you might guess that Europeans were among the more evolved and everyone else was a grade lower. I know it's a shock to you that you wouldn't think they would go there, but they did. And uh, make no mistake, though, not all Europeans were equal. No, they, they, there were some of them they considered to be atavistic, okay? and which means that they carried traits that harkened back to man's early ancestors. And these genes made people inferior, and it just couldn't be helped. When you're fault if you were inferior, it's your genes. Okay, your genes are inferior, and they're inferior because you're too close down to the branch-swinging ancestors of the family, the chimpanzee side of the family. The more tolerant thought it was their duty to help them, while others had more sinister notions that these people, you know, get rid of them, right? They're not really doing a lot of good. Well, Darwin thought that Spencer's theories were a crackpot. Unfortunately, Darwin didn't really write a lot about it or say a whole lot about it. You know, it was his cousin, and it probably felt awkward uh, coming against his own cousin's theories. But Darwin, Darwin had in his book, and a lot of people point this out, when Darwin, Darwin's uh, book, The Origin of Species, says the preservation of favored races in the, in the struggle for life, when Darwin uses the term races, he's not using that term in regards to He's not using that term in regards to uh, actual like races of men. In fact, the whole concept of race is bogus. I'm going to tell you that straight across the board. It's bogus. Uh, I think it's one of the dumbest things we ever came up with. For example, I mean, we, we, we separate things with these artificial things like skin color. Okay, now ethnicity is real. You come from places in the world. Your family histories are connected to various locations. That's true. But as far as having any difference in the human race, there, there just isn't. 
there's, there is no biological basis for race whatsoever. I mean, you can look down and see from the top of Europe where people live in, you know, climates that are not so warm. You see, you know, light skin. And as you move down through Europe, you start to see the grades of skin color slowly change. At what point does something become white or at what point does it become black? This is a very artificial category. And in fact, how can you even say this when there are no two skin colors that are exactly the same? Now, I know I'm entering into controversial territory here, but I do want to say that I think that the whole concept of race is a made-up construct to divide people. I don't think there's any biological basis for race. Now, I do believe racism exists. That is, perceived things, that people perceive someone or some group of people different from themselves, and they institute policies of bigotry and hatred. I don't believe, though, scientifically, any such thing as race actually exists. I believe that all of us are part of one race, and that race is the human race. And there is enough genetic similarity between us to note that all humans come from the same common set of ancestors. How do we know that? Because anthropology has found the one in the human gene pool, what they call African Eve, which means that everybody's mtDNA, which is the, MT, the DNA that's inside your cell, is close enough that it suggests that we all come from a single woman in prehistory. So this notion of race is ridiculous. And Darwin understood races as being different species of animals, not different races of men. Unfortunately, his idiot cousin, Spencer, uh, Herbert Spencer, is going to take that and take that to a different level. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the birth of social Darwinism and the eugenics movement is born. Now, if you're looking at your slides, you can see I have the picture of uh, the scientist Ernst Hagel. This is his view of race. You can see how he views race as you look at the top line. You can see the monkey on this side. And then if you go all the way to the end, you can see that you know, there's a great difference. Now, if you look down at the bottom at other races besides the white, the white race, okay, the way he's seeing it, you can see that they're a little closer to the, on each end, they're a little closer to one another. So he's indicating that different races of people evolved differently and some are more evolved than others. Totally bogus, total trash, but this, this theory is going to definitely start percolating and moving through society in profound ways. So this racial view is going to catch like wildfire and it's going to inspire a horror of eugenics. But this adds to the growing number of isms. But there is one more ism that's going to make Europe and the rest of the world a little bit sicker. And we'll talk about that on our next episode.